Welcome to ScrubCast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm Rachel Baker. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence with Assistant Professor of Vascular Surgery, Dr. Elsie Ross. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Now, in my experience with AI is basically the 2001 movie with Jude Law, but Dr. Ross persuaded me to take a look at one of her papers published in the Journal of the American Heart Association titled Unsupervised Learning for Automated Detection of Coronary Artery Disease Subgroups. You told me this is one of your favorite papers. Why does this one hold a special place in your heart? It was a true labor of love. (laughs) I started working on it back um, when I was doing my postdoc, and it evolved from something that was mm, interesting, a project where I was looking to figure out what unsupervised learning was into something that completely blew my mind in terms of how much information it could provide in an automated way. So that's why it's one of my favorites. Oh, that's so sweet. So given my history that I, I just told you about, <laughs> uh, bear with me. If I interpreted what I read correctly, your super smart computer was able to predict a patient's prognosis based solely on their genetics. Is that right? Sort of. Uh <laughs> So computers aren't super smart. Uh, I think anyone who spends time in the computer science domain realizes that computers just do what we tell them to do. They're just better at doing it over and over and over again. But it's what you program is what you get. Um, But the algorithms are getting more sophisticated in terms of weeding through data and trying to make sense of it. Um, In my typical machine learning ventures, I'm trying to predict something like which patient is going to go on to have a bad outcome. But here it was more just trying to understand what what were the unique patients in this group of patients who generally had coronary artery disease. And the super smart or really interesting thing that the computer did was apply these mathematical um, algorithms to identify unique patient subgroups. And in doing so, we used a lot of data, including their genetics, but we also used um, things like um, social aspects, like what were their socioeconomic status? How much um, education did they have? Um, We used their behavioral characteristics, like how often were they um, likely to exercise um, in a week or a day? Um, in addition to other clinical variables, lab values, to try to tease apart what made each patient subgroup unique. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) The computer using all of this data and created these subgroups. And then how do you implement it once it turns out this amazing information? Yeah. Um, great question. That's what, that's like the bajillion dollar question really, um, (laughs) is because I, I got so interested in this space because, you know, we're in the middle of Silicon Valley. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in computer science and then machine learning and healthcare data, um, just seemed like a natural fit for someone who wants to, um, 
help change how we deliver healthcare. The problem is that all the math and all the algorithms are really interesting. We have a lot more data now. And so you can kind of get stuck in this model development mode and Mm. doing research to improve like the performance of the model, like by 5% or something like that. But what a lot of us are learning now, and I've been doing this since at least like 2013. But what a lot of us are learning now, 10 years on nearly, is that the implementation is actually really hard. And I think harder than building the models. Because at a place like Stanford, we have a lot of smart people that can do the math and discover Mm -hmm. new ways of doing math that helps us do things like this, like identify unique patient subgroups. But then the translation to how we get that math to a program, software, or just a movement that encourages physicians to do something different with data, that part's the hard part. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're still figuring out, to be honest. In the perfect world of your imagination, how does this work? Yeah. So to me, I I wear a couple of hats Mm -hmm. at work. So part of the time I'm working on the stuff we've already discussed. Another part of the time I'm in the hospital seeing patients in the clinic um, Mm -hmm. or at their bedside or operating, right? Right. And it dawned on me a lot that Treating patients one by one is super important, but it's really hard to understand what's globally going on across like your patient population that you're specifically interested in, whether that's people with cardiovascular disease or across the health system or across, you know, the larger population. And so in an ideal world, things like this, like this effort uh, would Mm -hmm. be used to help people like me who are doing the day-to-day work have a bird's eye view of what's going on with our patient populations. It would also help if we had, you know, some kind of coordinating unit, like a population health unit that was using these insights to do something differently in terms of how we're taking care of patients. So in the paper, we, in this effort, found four distinct groups of patients, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which, again, is super intuitive for a clinician. You have one group of people who are older, they're Caucasian, and they're smokers, right? That's the mm-hmm. classic vascular patient that we've all been taught about. Mm-hmm. But over time, like I trained for like seven years, like five years yep. of residency, and then two years of a postdoc. And over that time period. I saw how quickly we transformed into a into a specialty that was taking care more of diabetics with vascular mm-hmm. disease. And so in this other group, we found a multi-ethnic cohort of younger individuals who all nearly all had diabetes, lower socioeconomic status. And then we had these like two other groups that were similar in some ways, but very distinctly different in others, some of which had to do with genetics. And so when you have that spectrum of patients, what's going to work for one patient group may not 
be necessary or might not work in the other patient group. So for this cluster of multi-ethnic patients with diabetes, what tools do we have in our toolbox to help them? And it might have to do with addressing things like social determinants of health to improve compliance with medications, frequent checks to ensure they have good foot health for their vascular disease, that they're on the latest and greatest medications that both manage their cardiovascular disease and their diabetes, um, which is different than the college-educated group of people who may be taking all the medications, reading the latest New England Journal of Medicine paper to figure out what they should be doing. They may just need something different, right? So how do we address people's needs given their unique profiles? And I think that can be done both from physicians understanding the greater bird's eye view and from specific groups of people, you know, in a healthcare system that are charged with improving population health. I like your imagination. I'm going to look for a house there. (laughs) It's a growing movement. I have to say, I I, um, was reading a JAMA paper from 2020 where they did this with Kaiser data um, Mm. and they too were interested in this question, like how do we, tailor our interventions towards people based on who they are, what they are, and what their problems are. And they were looking on a broader scale because Kaiser, part of their mandate is to take care of people on a population health basis, very different than fee-for-service places in some ways, although that's changing a bit. And so they did some clustering. They also applied some different math and found that they had these elderly frail patients, these cancer patients, high opioid user patients. And they too were interested in designing interventions specific to these patient populations. So it's in the early days. And I think, you know, it could be bigger in five to 10 years. So yeah, part of the fun of being here is trying to translate what's in our imagination into the real world. Awesome. Well, I think the future sounds very cool. (laughs) Thinking more about this particular study You worked Mm -hmm. with a very diverse team from Dr. Alyssa Flores, who I believe was a med student at the time, to some real science like Nick Leeper and Nigam Shaw. How did you work together as a team? Yeah, that's the other fun part of research. I have been doing this work under the auspices of a career development grant. And so that kind of forces, not it doesn't force people, but it's a nice way of having regular interactions with people who are much farther along their research careers and journeys than you are. And so as I mentioned earlier, this started when I was a postdoc in Nigam's lab. And back then, I was just a third-year vascular resident, not really sure <laughs> about the wider world out there, just really interested in data and machine learning. And so someone like Nick Leeper, who's a vascular medicine specialist, he sees patients, he also does cutting-edge research, kind of has insights into what's cool or what could be interesting. And so during the time as a postdoc, I would come up with ideas and kind of bounce them off of Nick and Nigam. And Nick would be like, oh, that's interesting. Here are some clinical considerations. 
And I would talk to Nigam and he'd say, oh, that's fascinating. Here are some mathematical algorithmic considerations, or I'll put you in touch with someone who's working on the specific algorithm, which at the time was general, generalized low rank modeling, who was Alejandro Schuler, who I believe was a PhD student, not yet a postdoc, um, when he was working on this general class of algorithms for um, gaining insights into clinical data. Whereas Nick was working with Alyssa later on when we decided to like put this effort together. And I worked with Alyssa in terms of what kind of analysis do we do to make this more clinically salient and relevant. So it's been great having input from two very different people, but I love them because they're both very contrarian in their thoughts and insights. <laughs> and so I try to triangulate. <laughs> and it's been, it's been working so far. Well, I love that idea of you getting insight and inspiration from Nick and Nigam, but then you also passing that along to Alyssa. I think that's really, you know, it's the mentorship model that yeah. we all are hoping for. Yeah. Exactly. And Alyssa now, she was a med student. Now she's a vascular resident. Um, and she's interested oh, in machine learning, data science. Unfortunately, she's not a vascular resident here, but she's at MGH, so she'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> at least we converted her to the dark side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I know you told me that you just finished submitting another grant. What is next on the horizon for your research? Yeah, so it's exactly this question about how best to implement what we're developing in the lab from two perspectives. One is how do you get insights to people who need them to make the right decisions? Um, but the other thing that has been on my mind for a long time and I haven't quite figured out how to integrate it is how do we make sure that these models don't do harm when thinking about the world from a disparities perspective. Um, we know in healthcare that there are a lot of outcome disparities, right? Like, or, or even like disparities in diagnosis. Um, so certain groups of people don't get diagnosed with a common disease, either because they present with different symptoms. You can think about like women um, and heart attacks, right? Like for a long time, we didn't know that women had different clinical symptoms when they showed up with heart attacks. So they weren't getting diagnosed and they were having bad outcomes. And it happens in vascular disease as well. So the question there is, how do we develop models that are broadly reliable and how do we address the issue of bias with artificial intelligence rather than just coded into what we're building, right? Um, so yeah, the next, the, the latest grant has to do with trying to develop models that are broadly applicable, that won't do harm and will be used by clinicians <laughs> and to figure out how to put those pieces together in the right way to make the most impact that we can. Great. Well, I can't wait to see it. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and on the podcast. Thank you so much, Rachel. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear what you think of Scrubcast. You can email us at scrubcast at stanford.edu or hit us up on Twitter at Stanford Surgery. If you like Scrubcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like us, smash that five-star review. 
Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.